Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 217 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Today we are covering Beyond Labels with Dr. Sina McCullough and Joel Salatin. And you guys are really in for a serious treat. We're super excited about these two guests and their new collaboration book that they've put together. Um, I know I personally have been following Joel Salatin's work for years, and he's really a hero in the world of sustainable farming and regenerative agriculture. And then Dr. Sina, who was a new name to me, has a pretty incredible story as well. Yes. Like many of our guests and clients, Dr. Sina really fell into her line of work after struggling with her own health. And today we'll learn more about her personal story, the difference of the backgrounds between her and Joel, how they cross paths, and so much more. And as Becky said, um, I'll, I'll discuss in this episode my connection of when Brady was farming and how really I believe that Joel played a huge role in my understanding of being a conscious omnivore and really expanded my horizons to the idea of compassionate consumption of animals. He played a big role in my transition to being an omnivore after a long time of a vegan and vegetarian diet. So it's an awesome conversation. I will say on the forefront that uh, Joel is out there using farm internet. (laughs) So bear with us if the mics, you know, do a little lag here or there. We did the very best we could in editing. And I think that the information is so empowering. I want to make sure that you do give it a listen. So without further ado, let's first do our sponsor for today's episode, Fond Bone Broth, and then we'll read their bios and get this conversation rocking. Yes, I think Fond is a perfect fit when we're talking about transitioning to a real food diet and really this focus on sustainability and connection with where your food comes from. So Fond makes these amazing bone broth tonics that are slow simmered and lovingly tendered from tended yes. <laughs> from simmer to seal. And they're really focusing on all elements of the process from making their broths in exclusively stainless steel with well water that has naturally occurring minerals and is tested daily for excellence and purity. And then they're also focusing on partnering with organic farms using glass jars for their storage process and really mindful of every step of the process of bringing their product to market. Their ingredients also are probably my favorite part. So every ingredient in Fawn Bone Broth is handpicked and paired to really truly optimize absorption and taste from the turmeric and cracked pepper to their beet and poblano, which is a personal favorite of mine. Their bone broths are truly a sous chef in a jar and the most delightful sipping bone broth that I've found on the market. 
Yes. So go on over to Fond, that's F-O-N-D, bonebroth.com and use the code AllieMillerRD at checkout and you will save off your first order. Again, that's FondBoneBroth.com. Use AllieMillerRD at checkout. So I'll read Dr. Cena's and then maybe you read Joel's and we'll bring them all on. So Dr. Cena McCullough is the author of Beyond Labels and Hands Off My Food. She holds a PhD in nutritional science and a BS in neurobiology, physiology, and behavior, both from the University of California at Davis. She was the director of R&D for a supplement company and taught biochemistry and bioenergetics at UC Davis. Despite her knowledge, she developed an autoimmune disease which prompted her to launch an investigation of our food supply. What she learned saved her life. She reversed the disease without the use of medication. And now Dr. McCullough is dedicated to helping others avoid the health challenges she has faced. Joel Salatin and his family operate Polyface Farm in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. Beginning in 1961, the family developed soil building and water enhancing protocols to grow pastured livestock from beef to pork, chicken, duck, turkey, and sheep. The farm direct markets to individual families, restaurants, and institutional dining services. With a long track record of innovation and excellence, Polyface Farm holds educational seminars, farm tours, day camps, and events to encourage duplication and understanding. Joel is the author of 13, oh my gosh, books, including Beyond Labels, Everything I Want to Do is Illegal, and The Sheer Ecstasy of Being a Lunatic Farmer. And he's the editor of the world's premier pastured livestock publication, The Stockman Grass Farmer. So welcome, Sina and Joel, to the Naturally Nourished podcast. To start us off, why don't you guys just tell us a little bit about your backgrounds, maybe first individually, and then we'd love to hear the story of how your paths crossed and how you came to write your book, Beyond Labels. Who who wants to start? Sina, you want to start or want me to start? Go ahead. I'll follow you. Uh, Okay. All right. Fair enough. So, um, so, you know, my, my background is uh, our family was farming. Uh, we never made a living farming growing up, but we, uh, dad was a visionary and, and we did a lot of composting, portable, you know, animal systems and all sorts of stuff. Strong, you know, a strong philosophy. And um, then I, I wanted to farm full time. I got my first chickens when I was 10 years old and uh, came through high school, direct marketing, started to, you know, sell to, uh, you know, friends and neighbors and a couple schools and some restaurants, different things. And then uh, after college came back and, and um, you know, wanted to farm full time. So we came out here and uh, Teresa and I got married. We lived in the attic and drove a $50 car, didn't have a TV. If we didn't grow it, we didn't eat it. We had our own firewood lived in the attic of the farmhouse on, you know, $300 a month, but we were committed to a dream. And, um, and it took about two or three years before we realized we were actually going to make it, but we did. And today we, um, you know, we service about 50 restaurants, some seven or 8,000 families uh, with beef, pork, chicken, eggs, turkey, rabbit, lamb, duck, and duck eggs, and, uh, and forestry products. 
and run a, you know, a, a full-blown uh, apprentice program germinating new young farmers. And uh, I've written, you know, several books about this because it was such a cool story that this, you know, non-moneyed, non-moneyed young family, you know, actually, you know, makes a, makes a living on a small farm. So that's kind of our, you know, our background as far as how Cena and I met. So, you know, I've been speaking around the world and we got asked to do a program together in Richmond. And um, so uh, I, you know, I, I think she went first, I went second. But anyway, she started speaking. I hear a lot of speakers all over the world and, um, you know, most are yawners and occasionally one, you know, really lights you up and, uh, and Cena lit me up. You know, I was on the edge of the chair. I took about 12 pages of notes. I couldn't write fast enough and was just completely, you know, enthralled with her approach. Um, and, and so, uh, when we got, when we got done, um, then, then I had, I had to speak and follow her, which is not a he easy act to follow. And then when, when I got done, she, she found me in the, in the crowd, uh, and said, let's write a book together. <laughs> and I said, well, let's do that. You know? And so that started a long, it, it's been several years since then, but, um, but finally we, we have it. That's so cool. And Joel, you were the first person who I heard the term regenerative agriculture from, I was living in Seattle, Washington, when I was attending Bestier University, the, the naturopathic college that I went to. And my husband was farming at an organic farm and transitioned to a biodynamic farm after, I think we, it must've been some documentary, this would have been 2005 or 2006. Um, but, but I think that I'm just grateful for all the work that you've done and it's really cool full circle to have you on the Naturally Nourished podcast because you have really inspired the way that I looked at food and farming as a vegan and then really understand the harmony and connection and necessity of animals in, in the agricultural environment. So you've had a really big role in, in my food as medicine relationship. Well, that's very, that's very kind and very sweet uh, for you to say we we work with that we work with that thread believe me all the time uh, from you know from uh, animal welfare to how can you kill an animal to haven't we gotten beyond that don't we really just need to eat plants uh you know we don't have tiger teeth <laughs> all, all sorts of things and so it's very sweet to uh, to hear you say that and uh yes i've you know i've been in this space and and uh, when Cena tells her story, the, the, the contrast, and, and I, frankly, I think this is one of the strengths of the book is that we do have such different backgrounds. I mean, my family grew up on, or, on organic gardening and farming magazine, Mother Earth News, Whole Earth Catalog. I mean, we were, all of our farm buddies were hippies, but we, but we, were, we were conservative Christians from a religious standpoint. And so we had this really broad, eclectic, cosmopolitan background. We lost a farm in Venezuela, South America. That's another whole story. But, uh, you know, so I spoke Spanish before English. And, and so, but, but we, you know, we grew up on, on compost and non-chemical. We never had Coke in the house, never had a TV, uh, and, and, you know, had big gardens and, and grew up this way. Was so, so my background is so different than Cena's. And, and, you know, we grew up without soda, without candy bars, without, you know, we just, if we didn't grow it in our garden, we didn't eat it. And so listening to Cena's story, uh, you know, her story just makes me weep with appreciation over, over my background and, um, 
and and how we how we grew up here on the farm. It was just wonderful. Yes. So let's hear that juxtaposition, Dr. Cena. Let's hear about your background and you know, now we've heard how your paths have crossed. So if you could share with us your background and also the selection of the title of the book, Beyond Labels, and what that means to you. Sure, I'd love to. So for most of my life, I ate the way I was raised, which was based on the standard American diet. So that meant I consumed mostly processed foods. I was addicted to sugar. I would choose meat based on fat content, right? Not the price, um, which means I only ate conventional foods. Um, I actually didn't even know the difference between organic and conventional, which is crazy because my PhD is actually in nutrition. But we weren't actually taught that type of practical information in graduate school. So I ended up completing graduate school not knowing even how to navigate a grocery store. And then in, in about 2015, um, I was diagnosed with an advanced stage of an autoimmune disease. It was rheumatoid arthritis in my 30s. Um, it, was, it was very severe. It was accompanied by muscle wasting. Um, even though I was... Like I would literally take an avocado and just scoop it and, and eat it straight, but I couldn't, I could not keep the weight on. I lost like 15 pounds in one month. Um, I had arsenic poisoning, presumably from eating gluten-free foods. I developed, of course, leaky gut and deficiencies in 15 different nutrients. Even though um, my first jobs out of grad school we're working for supplement companies. So I was taking like a high quality vitamin mineral supplement every single day, but my nutrient deficiencies were so severe that I was diagnosed as borderline for both pellagra and beriberi. Wow. Which, yeah, which those are diseases most people don't hear about because, you know, unless you're reading a nutrition book, because those diseases can lead, both of them can lead to death. And both were actually eradicated in the U.S. by the mid-1900s. But that's one thing that we're seeing now is a resurgence of these micronutrient deficiency diseases. So before I was diagnosed in 2015, I actually sought help from Western medical doctors for 20 years. And I I underwent so many tests that, I mean, after a while, you just lose count because you're in the doctor's office all the time. But I had, I had breath tests, urine tests, blood tests, fecal tests, colonoscopies, multiple sigmoidoscopies. I even had exploratory surgery at one point. Wow. And nobody had any answers except prescription drugs. And I just refused to take the drugs. You know, I had seen what it had done to my mother, and I wasn't going to follow that same path. So then what happened was the last medical doctor that I saw, he was a GI specialist, he told me that the symptoms were in my head. And the reason he said that was because he couldn't figure out what was wrong. So at that point, I figured if I had any chance of healing myself, then I was going to have to find a different path. So I broke out of that box of conventional medicine. And once I did that, once I took that step, that's when I really started taking responsibility for my health. And I ended up creating my own healing path. I challenged every nutrition and health fact that I was taught in school. Um, And I listened to just hundreds of hours of the free online health and spiritual summits. 
I scour the scientific literature for any clue I could find to piece my puzzle together. Um, and eventually I did, I developed my own healing protocol. And that was over four years ago. And today I'm completely disease free. There's no markers of any kind of inflammation in my body. Um, and, and I have no pain. And in fact, I have more energy than I've ever had in my life. And even my kids tell me they have a hard time keeping up with me. <laughs> so yeah, so my, obviously my story is very different than Joel's, but like, like Joel said, um, it, the contrast gives you a well-rounded perspective. And I think it really emphasizes the power of food that, that food can really heal you. Like food can make you sick, but food can really heal you too. That food is medicine. Yes. So, and you know, that's one of our favorite mantras for certain. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's one. Yeah. I really, I strongly resonate with you around that concept. You know, a lot of people don't just don't understand that or they'll be like, yeah, yeah. Food is medicine. That makes sense. But they don't actually internalize it and then apply it, you know, and, and allow that concept to, to truly heal them and provide them with optimal health. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk about um, your newest book, Baby Beyond Labels, and I guess what that title means to you and how you came to write this book. Yeah, so the, the title, Beyond Labels, is um, very, it's perfect for both Joel and I, and I'll explain what I mean by that. So the book isn't just about reading food labels, that's just part of the journey. Um, we, we do talk to you about labels and about um, how the label really tells you what the manufacturer wants you to hear, and that's only part of the story. So we do take you beyond that label itself to give you a better understanding of like the clever wordsmithing and the nuances. And, and these aren't just like, okay, what does organic mean? You know, they, it's not just definitions on the label that a lot of those that are in the food business, you know, or in the food movement already know. We explain things like how the gluten-free label is a farce. It, those foods are not actually gluten-free, even though they say gluten-free. So we really take you beyond these labels. But then we strive to peel back another uh, layer of what a label means. So we strive to help you free yourself from all these labels that we've all adopted in our lives, these labels that can actually keep you sick or make you sick. Because um, one thing I've realized is that if you hold on to these labels, which are in essence limiting beliefs, it does set you up for um, a disease state. So what I mean by that is we, we all have adopted labels in our lives, like whether it's your job title, or your political affiliation, your gender, your age, you name it, these labels exist in all areas of our lives, including health and nutrition. So let me give you an example, and we go into this more in the book, but many of us during our quest to achieve optimal health and healing, we commonly turn to different diets like paleo, or keto or whole 30 you know you name it there's a list of them but those diets are just another type of label and that label promotes conformity over individuality 
And Joel and I really strive in this book to push towards individuality because only your body knows what's best for it. So if you lock yourself into one type of diet, then you become, you can become more focused on adhering to those man-made constructs than to actually listening to your body's own innate intelligence. So in essence, you become a slave to the confinements and the limiting beliefs of that dietary protocol. And in, in addition, when you do that, you outsource your authority to some quote unquote expert who created that diet. So you end up silencing your own instincts. And Joel and I decided that instead of living inside that box of limiting beliefs and confinement, that we believe that we all have this innate ability inside of us and that we wanted to, in this book, encourage you, show you how to harness that power by teaching you how to actually listen to your body. So in essence, we help you become your own expert. I think that's so wonderful. And it's interesting because that's really the approach that I take as a clinician. I always say to my clients after a 90 minute initial consultation, you know, I've just started to explore who you are and what's going on in your body. So I by no means am going to be able to tell you what we need to do. I can tell you what I perceive happening and what I perceive having an influence and I can give you suggestions on where we may want to explore further. But ultimately you need to tell me what resonates the strongest and you need to tell me what lights you up and what says aha to you louder because otherwise I'm inserting my beliefs and my perceptions of what's influencing your frame. Um, in the same sense, we take this idea also of doctrine creates disconnect. And I think that that's really what you're saying with this labeling thing. That's my second favorite mantra after food is medicine. And it's this idea exactly that if you put yourself in a, a label like the vegan diet or a keto diet or you name it, you're going to take shortcuts or you're going to skip over elements that would otherwise serve your body because of that dogma. Um, and that ultimately there's this N equals one very individualized need that we all have. I absolutely love that. I, I agree with everything that you're saying. Um, and I have found that too, is that when I work with clients or even after a talk, people will come up and ask me, okay, they'll say, I get it. I, I get that we have all these problems with the food. And I need to change my diet. So just tell me what to eat. What do you eat? Right. right? And, and Right. That's the big thing. They're like, just show me what's in your, I've had so many people ask me to do a video showing what's in my pantry, what's in my refrigerator, you know, like show me what's on your plate. And I have a really hard time doing that in good conscience because like you said, what's good for me may not be good for you. And it's hard though to, to relay that to people. Um, and I understand it because I was at the point too where I was so desperate. I just wanted somebody to help me, you know, to help get me off the floor. Um, help stop the pain. So I was just willing to try anything. So I do understand where, you know, that desperation is coming from and that desire is coming from. But now that I, uh, now that I know more about individuality and true healing, now I find I have to hold that line and tell them, like, I don't, I don't know what's best for you. Like I cannot in good conscience tell you eat X, Y, and Z right? Because then I'm just, like you said, pushing my own beliefs on somebody else. 
And so I really have to work a lot one-on-one with people to get them to start even listening to themselves. And a big part of that, as I'm sure you know, is learning how to trust yourself so that you're not looking for these outs. You're not outsourcing the problem, right? You're not looking to an expert to tell you what's best for your own body. Um, But yes, so I completely agree with, with what you're saying. And, and is, you know, it even goes, if, if go I could jump in, it, it even, it even comes to the farm. For example, a lot of people uh, complain at us because we're not organic. We're not organic certified. We, we, we don't, we don't uh, adhere to the license and the, and the label of, of organ of government, government certified organic. And one of the reasons is because it's so rigid that we can't build compost with pigs. One of our signature things that we do here at Polyface is we don't build compost with machinery. We build it with pigs, but that's not acceptable in an organic certified program. And so, uh, so here we have this beautiful system of using animals to do the work that respects the pigness of pigs, you know, and all these, you know, these cool phrases that people love us for, but none of it, is, is available under the rigid organic certification program. And, uh, and so, I mean, and I could go on there, there are numerous other things as well, but, but the point is that, that those, that whole label discussion extends all the way down to, you know, animal welfare certified, uh, right. uh, organic, whatever. And they all become, uh, I always say out at the, out at the far end, they always get squirrely and they don't allow, true innovation and 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 customized adaptation of of place site location resource passion capability they don't allow that kind of harnessing and and so uh, as Cena said they they become they become uh, uh, self-imposed enslavements on creativity and that's that's really a shame Right. It's, it's that lip service that feels good for the consumer with that seal or certification, but it, it ultimately becomes less of a viable life driven product. You know, um, I, I often will say to people, you know, eye contact and a handshake yeah. <laughs> with your farmer is, is the best exchange to ensure that you are feeding yourself with the best pharmacy, you know? Um, and so if you can get that, that, that far exceeds any, any label. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. We here at here at the farm, you know, we have an open door policy, a 24-7, 365 open door policy. Now, if you come at two o'clock in the morning, don't wake me up, but you're welcome to walk around the fields if you think we're doing something at two that you wouldn't approve of. And we find that that level of transparency is a fantastic authenticator uh, to, you know, to what the farm's doing. And um and, and we encourage that we we're right now, right now, we're very much encouraging folks to come and bring a picnic and, and enjoy the farm. I mean, uh, we're not closed down and there's plenty of room here and you can walk barefoot through the pastures and feed your microbiome, drink out of the stock tank. You know, you can, you can cuddle the animals and, and, um, and inhale deeply from the forest air, yeah. uh, and, and, and pasture, you know, pasture biology. Um, so, so we, we think that, that a, a, a farm should be a healing place, just like food should be a healing place. And unfortunately, we have so disrespected both in our culture that farms have become uh, places of, of, um, of disease and food has become something to fear. You know, those of us over 50, 
I never heard the phrase food allergy, but when you, when you disrespect, when you disrespect the, the beingness of food and farming to the extent that we do uh, now uh, in this country, then nature bats last. And so nature, instead of becoming a, a nourisher, instead of, instead of nourishing us, um, it, 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 it exacts a, a revenge, if you will, for disrespect and, um, and, and abuse. And so, you know, this new lexicon of E. coli, salmonella, you know, uh, uh, listeria, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, you know, all these squiggly Latin words we've all learned to say in the last 30 years, you know, these are all indicative of nature um, on her knees begging us, you know, stop enough. And the question is, you know, when, when will our conquistador culture listen? Yeah. And I think it's all about that, you know, symbiotic relationship that we get so disconnected from and, and are in some ways so far removed from when we're, you know, off of this continuum of, of optimal health. And I really liked that um, way of opening the book with the roadmap and the continuum from maximal to minimal health or vice versa and, and kind of a way to visualize and conceptualize, you know, where you're at on the journey and kind of where you're going. Well, one of the, one of the most gratifying things in the book and Cena, you jump in here, but Cena uh, uh, conceived this idea of, of this continuum. It's been, um, I take no credit for it whatsoever, but <laughs> it's been very gratifying to listen to the feedback uh, of reviewers who consistently say um, they appreciate that we we're not really judgmental. We're, we're glad to take a person that starts at a you know uh, eating out of the filling station, or a person who is you know eating um, you know from the health food store. Uh, it, it's okay. Everybody starts somewhere, and um, and goodness, there's enough in the journey to encourage each of us and to challenge each of us. And so we don't care where you start, but we try to take you through. And, 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 and we deal with, you know, with ancillary things like, you know, like, like hydration, um, uh, even, even forgiveness, you know, that's yeah. all part of this, this health journey. You know, it, look, it, if you, if you say, okay, I, I'm going to, I'm going to use the organic label. I'm going to eat nothing but organic. And you get so, um, whatever, uh, uh, psychologically possessed, <laughs> possessed about organic, you can actually have stomach ulcers from worrying about whether you breach your, totally whether you breach your, 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 you know, your organic thing or not. So you know, this is the kind of, so, so I love the fact that we have, we have brought, brought a, you know, made a broader, uh, uh, you know, search here in this healing journey that's beyond just just what you eat it, it even goes you know to to the farm to the soil and to your own uh lifestyle yeah and i'll piggyback on what joel's saying um yeah we realized joel did something brilliant early on so he, he just he does not give himself enough credit um joel like i was trying to get something down on paper like just start writing the book and Joel said to me that we were not going to write even one word until we had come to an agreement like on what the book's about and what 
what the layout's going to be, what the feel is going to be. So we spent probably a good six months going back and forth like before we even wrote anything, um, hashing all of this out. And it was brilliant that he did that because then um, we had the overall overarching theme of the book and everything just flowed from there. And what, from my perspective, the overarching theme was we need to meet people where they are, right? There's, there's so much fear, like not only in this time we're living in right now, just in general, but in just food itself and in health, there's a lot of fear. And there's a lot of people pushing different diets or different prescription drugs that are, they're pushing it based on this fear. And I thought, that's not really a good motivator. I don't want to motivate people with fear. Like fear is destructive. Fear can cause disease. Um, so I said, you know, what I'd rather do is meet people with love and acceptance. So instead of trying to kind of hit them over the head with, all these foods in your pantry are toxic. You got to throw them all out right now. You know, don't eat another <laughs> bite. Um, you know, that, that's a fearful approach, right? And it, it took all of us decades to get to where we are right now in our, uh, in our own individual health and wellness uh, space. And so we realized it's going to take people time. It took me time. It took me a lot of little baby steps to get to where I am. And I'm still learning, you know, even writing this book, I'm still learning. Like I, every time that every morning I'd wake up and I'd run over to my computer and I was checking my inbox to see if I got an email from Joel. And I was like a kid on Christmas morning. I was, thinking, <laughs> I was like, what am I going to learn today? You know, cause there's, there is, there's a lot of layers to learn. Um, but my point is we, that was the overarching theme was, and that's how the continuum was born. It's that it doesn't matter where you start, right? Love and accept yourself regardless, right? Because that's where you are right now. And then in your own space, in your time, when you're ready, we provide you with these simple, practical tips that can help you move towards optimal health. But you do it when you're ready, you know, instead of us saying, here's a schedule every week, you have to do a new one, you know, that's just another label. <laughs> right, right. Too analytical and, and not allowing that innate wisdom. And again, that connection that's, that's deeper. Um, let's talk. And I think that it's really neat um, for listeners to know that within this continuum, I, I also found it as a great resource that Beyond Labels provides quizzes. And so it is a way to balance this esoteric <laughs> betterment of the self and, and this journey to also provide for those that have that you know, type A, need that analytical <laughs> objective qualifier to actually have a starting point and use it as a, a learning process. Um, I want you guys to talk about the core principles because I thought that that's I was surprised to see things like you guys have mentioned, taking on elements like, you know, victimhood and dependence and, and sadness and ill will as playing a role of the healing process. So the core principles that you have are maximal health, maximal happiness, maximal freedom, maximal trust, and maximal personal responsibility. I'd love to hear a little bit more on what provoked that element and maybe each of you could select one um, to unpack a little bit further. 
Someone oh. cover maximal freedom. Because <laughs> I think we all need to hear that right now. <laughs> well, uh, I, 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 can, I can jump in on that uh, uh, quickly. Yeah, the, these core principles, yeah, uh, Cena's being very, very kind talking about our, our six to 12 month back and forth. I actually was discouraged in some of that, thinking that I was being, that I was irritating Cena, you know, <laughs> because I was being, um, whatever, uh, digging in my heels about, about certain things. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's just, it's wonderful. But as Cena said, once we, once we punch through that initial stuff, it just, it just flowed. We, we danced uh, very well. So one of the things that impressed me about Cena from day one, she wrote another book, uh, the title is hands off my food. And, um, and so, this, this whole freedom uh, takes a lot of things. We've already talked about being free from other people's labels, but I think also free from other people's expectations. We, you know, we grow up wanting to please mom and dad. We want to please, we want to please a school teacher, Sunday school teacher, principal, guidance counselor, professor, employer. I mean, we, we grow up uh, uh, um, in, in a lot of ways almost unable to dream because we grow up wanting to meet the expectations of, of other people. And so, uh, and part of the label thing is meeting the expectations of orthodoxy, uh, whatever, whatever the orthodoxy is. We want to meet the expectations of our doctor. Uh, we don't want to irritate the doctor. We want to do what he says. We want to, we don't want to irritate the, the teacher. We want to do what she says, you know, and, we want we want to color within the lines and we want to make our letters a certain way and 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 we're we're geared to this kind of um this kind of desire to to meet somebody else's expectations so we come into adulthood often uh without actually exercising our dis our discretion muscle our our free choice muscle our our choice muscle and so we, bec we, we, we get lethargic and anemic about what does, what, what floats my boat? You know, what's, what's my dream if, if I, uh, whether it's vocation, I mean, how many people are in a vocation that basically the guidance counselor said they should do, their parents said they should do? Right. We, we're very um, uh, cognizant of this on the farm here because we get consistently young people who are five or six years into a white collar career path and literally just, just, left their Dilbert cubicle and said, I can't do this anymore. Uh, I really want to have my hands in soil. I want to calluses and splinters and work in the, you know, and sweat and, and, and do some the stuff heck out of my body. <laughs> and, and right, 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 right. And, and be in the best shape I've ever yeah. been and being lean and supple and mean, you know, and, uh, and so, but, but nobody's ever given them license to do that. It's almost like we have to have, we have to, we have, to have permission to go do something that floats our boat or that's a passion in our heart. And so this, this freedom, freedom of, of being, of being uh, uh, only connected to our food through labels, that's one level of freedom. Freedom from just doing what everybody else expects, including all the food advertisements on television and how you're supposed to feel better and have friends if you eat Pepsi or Corona beer or whatever you're supposed to, supposed to have, all those expectations and just, and just moving forward to a freedom to listen to our bodies, to listen to our heart and, and, and take the road less traveled and be willing to, to free ourselves up from the orthodoxy of the day. 
uh, that that is a huge liberating thing. And yeah. and orthodox orthodoxy is extremely constricting. We all know that innovation is around the lunatic fringe, and so it's the free thinkers. It's the people who are free to think, free to try, free to be creative. Those are the people that always push the innovation of tomorrow's, uh, that have a legacy of innovation. Yeah, and I'll piggyback on that um, because there's another layer to that freedom too. And like, so a lot of people will, will say that, oh, I, I'm free. You know, like I live in America, I can pretty much do what I want to do. But when you peel it back for them and start giving them examples, you know, they'll think, they'll be like, oh, I really never thought about that before. So one example that I use is the lack of freedom that we have in the health arena. Uh, and this ties back into the labels. So for instance, I hear people all the time uh, identifying with their disease. So they'll say like, my arthritis is acting up again, or I have cancer. But we, so they're identifying it. It's, it's my arthritis, you know? And so that medical diagnosis is actually a label that that person c carries around with them for the rest of their life. I mean, it, and it becomes part of their identity. Hence they're saying my arthritis or I have. Um, and then our society um, reinforces that. So when you go into the doctor's office and you fill out your medical questionnaire, you know, the past history and current history, it's, oh, I got to check the box. Now I have arthritis. And once you actually identify with the disease, you actually keep yourself sick because now every cell in your body is going to start responding to, it responds to what you think and what you believe, what you feel and what you actually say, like the words that you speak over your body. So if you believe you're sick, then you're going to constantly reinforce that limiting belief or that label, and you're going to stay sick. So these, that's another example of the, the loss of freedom that we have acquired, that we've just accepted and allowed our, ourselves to give up, but we, ha we don't really understand it, you know, because we haven't sat down and thought about it. So that's just another example that we bring up in the book. And it's interesting when we think of systems, right, and how they uh, can play a role with impairing or, or further compartmentalizing, if you will. You know, it's like every time that said patient, and that's why I actually use the word client in my clinic instead of patients, because I think the word patient kind of mm. infers illness or sickness. But, yeah. but every visit that that client has, they're stamped with an ICD-10 code, this diagnostic criteria that continues to wear with them this labeling, you know, and then the system decompartmentalizes by giving them a specialist who only knows that narrow myopic part of how their body works. And so it's this decompartmentalization and, and breakdown and segregation instead of looking at the whole body. Yeah, that's, it, it's exactly right. You're exactly right. Uh, and yeah, mentalizing the body that's giving up some of your freedom too. I mean, the, as you know, the body doesn't work that way. It's, it's holistic, you know? Um, so yeah, we buy into this system where, you know, you're sent from one specialist to the next, you know, based on one, based on various symptoms that you have, you know, like diabetes, you're going to go to um, an endocrinologist and, you know, cancer, you go to an oncologist. 
Um, but you know, if you think about it in a way, like now you're just labeling parts of your body. And so you start seeing those bodies, those parts of your body as separate, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, the, my, my colon is separate from my pancreas, um, you know, which is separate from my heart. Um, like you say, you, so you start compartmentalizing them. And um, as you do that, you're putting labels even on your body. Mm -hmm. And that takes away from the whole harmony uh, that exists throughout your body. Um, so, you know, it's another way of taking away some of the freedom that's actually flowing from inside of you. And within this theme of, of freedom, I love that. And I think it connects, you know, so much to um, our mental and emotional state and what we, you know, the inputs we put into our body and also connects to food, like Joel said. Um, but I love that you break this book up into these practical bites. And I want to dig in maybe on a couple of those specifically, I swear I read beyond <laughs> number one, but I really liked um, the first one about harnessing your power and, you know, how you have the power to shape the food supply. And I think this is something we say a lot in terms of voting with your dollar and using your discernment to, you know, make choices that are supportive of, of your goals. So maybe let's dig in starting with that one and then getting into some of the other practical bites um, that you feel are applicable. Sure. Joel, do you want to take that one? Uh, well, yeah. So the, the power, um, you know, people feel so disempowered. I mean, there are big issues in the world, big issues in our country, big issues in our lives, and often we feel disempowered. And so, um, so I, I know I know Cena's uh, path to healing was the day that she realized, well, if it's going to be, you know, if if I'm going to get out of this, I'm going to have to, you know, I'm going to have to uh, deal with this myself. Uh, I'm, I'm I can't be dependent on you know, on, on all the doctors or the orthodoxy or, or whatever. And so, um, so that was, that was, that was actually the beginning of the healing for her. And the same thing is true here, you know, on the farm, uh, that the, the power exists here. We're not, we're not generally short of, of ideas or re I mean, we're not generally short of money. Um, we're generally short of, of creativity of, of having the, the the uh, mental the mental state to say we can we can do this better uh, we don't need another machine necessarily we don't need more money we don't need a government grant or a program um, it's all right here it's all everything we need is right here and we just have to um, we just have to arrange it better caress it better massage it better. And, um, and it'll work. You know, often we have this idea that nature is some, you know, reluctant, uh, reluctant partner we have to put in a half Nelson wrestling match to make do what we want to do when actually nature is a, is a benevolent lover that just wants to be caressed in the right places. And, and that, that's a very different kind of power uh, that we have in our, in our lives, in our surroundings than, um, you know, than a, than a, a conquistador kind of domin uh, a dominating, subjugating type type situation. I love that, Joel. And I think, you know, we've been talking so much about harnessing the power of the human body. And I think this likenhood to, to farming, like you said, it 
we think so much currently because of innovation and because of the advances in industrialized movement in input for output. We need to put in more, we need to amend, we need to change rather than pausing to understand and work with. And I think that that's a very big difference when we're looking at this big picture. It is, the, the sun, you know, the, the sun is the power and, uh, you know, and, and the best, the best uh, photosynthetic panel on the planet or the best photovoltaic cell on the planet is the green leaf. And, uh, and that, you know, that drives, it drives biomass, carbon sequestration, uh, you know, climate, it drives everything. And so, so that's the power and, and it hits every square foot uh, on my place, the same as this place. And so, uh, so being able to realize that the power is inside, the, the power is not outside, the power is inside, uh, is the beginning of, of the healing process. It certainly was the beginning of the healing process on our farm. Uh, when we, you know, it, it's, it's not fertilizer from outside. No, it's actually right. harnessing the biomass from the inside. That, that's, that's a, a complete inversion of, of theme on a, on a farm management program. And the same thing applies, you know, in our uh, physical and mental and spiritual lives as well. So cool. I love it. Um, and then maybe moving on to a different kind of practical bite and, and maybe getting into some of the ones from section five specifically um, on getting your hands dirty. I think this is an area where a lot of our listeners probably have some of kind of the early stages covered and are already doing a lot of these things, thankfully. Um, but I want to talk about maybe some of the more advanced tips, if you will, and kind of starting points or, or an area of getting your hands dirty and connecting with your food uh, that you feel is important and maybe, you know, less overwhelming for individuals than like relocating to a homestead, which I think is the optimal <laughs> kind of pinnacle, right? It starts with growing one herb yes. all the way to yes. real. <laughs> um, so where's a good place to dig in and, and start or where would you... Um, guide someone who's looking to get more connected with their own, you know, food inputs. Sina, you want to jump in there? Sure. Um, so yeah, this one, this section, I'm not even at the end of this section yet. <laughs> like I'm still in that journey. Um, but that's why I thought it was important to give practical bites that anybody could do, even if you're living in an apartment. So we started with just grow one herb in your kitchen. Uh, like it doesn't even matter what the herb is, just whichever herb that you like. And if you don't know which one you like, you can always just like go down to the nursery, for instance, and smell them, you know, and see how your body responds to it. Um, so growing one herb in your kitchen, like pretty much anybody can do that, you know, just give it some sun and put it on the window seal or whatnot. Um, so that's one of them. And then we moved up from there to grow one edible plant inside. So I started with lettuce, uh, which was really easy to grow. And, you know, we, and we walk you through how to do these things in the book. Um, and it was really actually a cool project to do because I have young, young children. They're both under the age of 10. And they really enjoyed doing it. Like they would run into the kitchen every morning and, 
they would argue over who got the spray bottle to be able to spray down the soil. <laughs> like, you know? um, so it was a way to actually also connect my children um, on an additional level with their own food supply. Um, so, you know, so that would be another tip. And like I said, we explain how to do that. We teach you how to grow sprouts in your house. Um, and then we move forward from there to how to start just a small garden. And that could even just be one, one pot, you know, like on, on your front porch, for instance. Um, and Joel provides a lot of different ways in this section to grow food in a small space. So, which I thought was very mindful because we don't all have acres to be able to grow food on. Um, so we go from there and then um, tips on um, covering your soil, what to cover it with, how to actually create compost, um, <laughs> which I have still not been successful. If, if you read that tip in the book, I think Joel got a kick out of it. My dog kept eating the compost. So, <laughs> um, so I'm still working on that one. Um, but I don't know if, if Joel, if you want to go through one of these other more advanced tips, they're like add a solarium, catch the rain. Sure. The yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of solariums. I mean, this is, this is something that you can, um, add onto the South side of your house in the Northern hemisphere. If you're in the Southern hemisphere, you would add it on the North side of your house. But, um, you know, season extension is a, is a big deal. And, um, you know, in my opinion, if there are three good uses for petroleum, it's probably for, uh, for, for water pipe and um, for uh, uh, excavation equipment to build ponds, for, for uh, replacing the beaver, the beaver dams that have, that have been gone now for a long time. And the third one would be um, plastic or some sort of a, you know, a, a, a transparent uh, covering for solariums um, because solariums on the side of a house not only heat with passive heat they give you, um, you know, additional heat they're beautiful and they bring they bring uh, summer in in the winter and they allow you to grow plants uh, you know that you that you'd be too cold to grow outside to grow them right there where you live there's a there's a tremendous amount of advantages uh, with a solarium uh, there are all sorts of kits. I mean, we have one on our, our house was built in 1790. So, uh, and we have a, a modern, um, you know, cedar built, beautiful uh, solarium on the, on the side, on the end of it, on the South side. So you can retrofit a very, very old structure with a compatible uh, solarium. And uh, these are, you know, these are just so valuable to be able to have uh, some of your own food uh, catching the rain, you know, um, Every square foot of a roof in a 30-inch rainfall area catches about 22 gallons of water a year. So even a small house of, of uh, you know, 1,500 square feet uh, is going to generate, you know, in the 30,000 gallon uh, a year range with water. And so, um, so cisterns, uh, you can double this up as a fish pond if you want to. But uh, the idea of, of catching your roof runoff uh, as rain to reduce flooding uh, in, in the urban sewers and the neighbors, and then use that, dispense it into your solarium or your garden or, or uh, 
goodness, you can, you can uh, plumb your house with a couple little valve changes. You can plumb your house so that non-potable goes into your toilet. I mean, sure. uh, America could, could, drop, could drop half of its potable water use by using non-potable water in our toilets. Uh, that's, that would be a major, you know, a major hydration issue in the country. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cool things here, uh, that you can do as you, as you go on to this place. And, um, and I, I think this is because this is incremental. What happens is you say, well, let's do one and you do one and you find it satisfying and you say, wow, that, that felt good. Let's do another one. And so the whole idea of this last, the fifth, the last section of the book is to, um, is to just uh, let people know what, uh, you know, what, what can be done. It doesn't mean we don't love you if you don't do any of this. Uh, but it, but it does mean if you found the first part of the book satisfying, and this is a good thing. Well then, um, again, this is a continuum and it's, it's not an endpoint. So you can, um, you know, you, you always want something else you can do tomorrow. I mean, if you don't have something else to do list, you might as well quit. So uh, the last section of the book, in my opinion, is a way to make sure that people don't, don't quit too early, that, there, that there's something else yet to, to play with and to enjoy in this journey, in this continuum uh, that can last a lifetime. I love that. And one area I wanted to like selfishly kind of pick your brain about, or um, maybe we'll extend it to regenerative agriculture in general, but I saw the section on, on getting chickens. And I know that Allie and I have that on both of our wish lists of, you know, when things cool down in Texas a little bit. Um, but maybe let's jive just in general on the importance of, of animals within this world of regenerative agriculture and, and sustainable farming because I think this is an area where there's still so much disconnect and misinformation and even the most savvy of our clients and listeners can sometimes get sucked into this idea that you know opting out of, of eating animals is somehow better for the planet so I know that's a very loaded question but maybe oh, let's unpack both for soil yeah. and the role of, I mean I remember I was as a vegan when I watched the documentary with you Joel I remember seeing you were talking about you know the chickens follow the ruminants and they scratch through the feces and that you know inputs mm -hmm. more nitrogen into the soil and I I was like oh well of course it's this symbiosis it's this mm -hmm. viable living ecosystem um, so let's unpack that a little bit and, and what regenerative agriculture is yeah well that's that's a great that's a great question in general, in general, what we've done in modern uh, industrial agriculture is highly segregated. And, and I, you know, I know that's a powerful word and I'm not using it in a racial sense, but I, I'm using it in a, in a sense in which we have broken apart. We have broken apart the integration that nature wants to have. So we segregate, we, we, uh, we get the fertilizer from here, we plant the plants over here truck them over here and feed the animals over here in factory farms. We process them over here and then we sell them over there. And, 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 and this, this, this beautiful symbiotic chain that is supposed to occur in integration is broken into a whole bunch of waste streams, landfills, and, 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 um, and, and 
actually, you know, toxic material like a, a manure lagoon or, you know, oversupply of, of manure in one place. And so one of the, the beauties of animals is that they can take uh, things that humans can't eat from leaves and grass to kitchen scraps to uh, whey, whey from, uh, you know, cheese making. Um, they, can, they can take all of these things and they can, they can up, up nutrient them. They, uh, they can move them to a place where humans can enjoy it uh, in, an, in an upgrade. And, you know, you and I can't go out and eat grass or eat leaves and, and do well on it. We, you know, we, we have a different digestive system. And so a ruminant can take that, can prune, can prune that kind of material and make extremely nutrient dense and, and highly metabolizable uh, nutrients that, that our bodies can metabolize easily easier often than, than a, a lot of plant things when you get uh, down to some of the nutrients. And so um, animals had lots of reasons in nature. Um, one is as an upcycler of, of, uh, of things like leaves and grass and, and debris and uh, bugs and, and insects and things like that, upcycler of those things. Secondly, they're critical for being able to move fertility around to, I call it democratized fertility. Without animals, all of the fertility would gravitationally move from the ridges down into the valleys, you know, twigs, leaves, minerals, rocks, all this stuff would move into the valleys and we'd have infertile slopes and, and ridges and very fertile valleys. Uh, and, and, and animals eat in the valley and then go up on the ridge tops to digest it because of uh, predators. So the predator-prey relationship is key to making sure that the animals move up to high ground and defecate and urinate, and that moves the valley nutrition, the, the valley fertility back up onto the ridges so you have a democratized egalitarian fertility option. You know, those are, those are macro uh, ecosystem things that occur when we have highly integrated closed loop cyclical symbiotic uh you know animal livestock production which is exactly what we uh try to do here at our farm and and to my knowledge to my knowledge there's virtually no commercial um plant production you know produce vegetable grain production system that doesn't depend on inputs from animals uh, they, they hype up. Animals digest. They hype up. One of the things that animals can do relative to, uh, compared to a compost pile, if you've ever made a compost pile, you know, that they can be kind of um, uh, sophisticated. I mean, you have to have the right temperature, the right mix of ingredients, the, the right amount of moisture, the right microbes. I mean, there's a lot of little nuances to make compost good. But when an animal eats and digests, um, that material instead of going in a compost pile, it goes through a digestion system that in 24 hours creates this, this wonderful uh, concentrate uh, uh, material out the back end. And in the animal, unlike a compost pile, the temperature is always right. The, the bacteria is always right. The moisture is always right. And, and the environment is always right. So, so an animal can do in 24 hours, what you might struggle with a compost pile to do in, in six months. And so again, 
the animal is a, is, comes alongside as a, as a key facilitator in the entire biomass regeneration uh, uh, journey and, and that cycle. And so, so enjoying that in your home, in your house, uh, I mean, we have, we have, you know, we have pets. Uh, I mean, one dog generates as much manure as nine chickens and dog manure is nasty. Chicken manure is, is wonderful. Uh, I mean, just from a, from a pathogen toxicity standpoint. So, so, um, and, and a chicken gives you eggs. A chicken eats your kitchen scraps. A dog won't do that. (laughs) And so from strict utility, uh, you know, the, the, what I call kitchen chickens are one of the most wonderful additions to your home. I I advise people tongue in cheek, obviously, because I like, I like pets. Um, but tongue in cheek a little bit, I say, look, get rid of your dog and your cat and just put in two or three chickens in the terrarium uh, area of your house. And, uh, and not only that, you'll have a great, um, have a great role model for your teenagers. Chickens wake up real early in the morning. They, they spend all day happily eating trash in a treasure. And as soon as the sun goes down, they go to sleep. I mean, what a, what a beautiful role model for teenagers. You're happily getting <laughs> up in the morning, working all day happily and for, for trash and, uh, and going to bed at sundown instead of uh, prowling around the neighborhood at night. Perfect role model for teenagers. So there's a lot to recommend, um, you know, having a visceral, a visceral uh, uh, interaction with animals. Love it. Love it. Well, my four-year-old daughter already has our future chickens named uh, Josie, Beatrix, and Trixie. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Give you an update. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. And, and pe- you know, people that think, well, chickens, you know, they, they, don't, they don't have a, a personality. Listen, they, they have every bit of personality. There are bossy ones and timid ones and, and, uh, and ones that want to be petted and ones that don't want to be petted. And they, they exhibit every kind of personality trait um, that, that you can imagine. So, yeah, they're, uh, so, so uh, naming them um, is probably a cool thing. <laughs> awesome. It makes the chores easier, right? If you're, if you're going out to feed the girls <laughs> and they have personality. Sure. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So, Sina, um, before we come to a close, uh, I just want to ask you, we were talking, just kind of tying up this idea of the food system and um, maybe taking this more with the work of your other book as well. Let's connect where farm subsidies come into here or, um, you know, how the food system has become broken. So we've kind of talked about in an agricultural model um, you mentioned some elements of, you know, gluten-free being a misnomer often. Um, let's discuss on the financial influence of the six most subsidized crops and what that means for the future of a whole food versus a, a, a processed, you know, food-like substance, if you will. Sure. Yeah. And as you said, this comes back to my first book, but we also talk about it in Beyond Labels. Um, So, you know, the farm bill, that's something that I never, ever looked at before, like before I got sick, because I thought it's a farm bill. It's for farmers. What does it have to do with me? You know, Um, but I learned I was very wrong that um, the farm bill, not only it explains why fruits and vegetables are so expensive, 
why junk food is so cheap. Um, it explains how the government really is choosing your dinner for you. Um, and it, it, it dictates what foods, um, what foods are grown and often how they're grown. Um, and what was most alarming to me was in learning about the food bill is that it's actually largely crafted by politicians and lobbyists. So clearly not the people who we want to have, you know, creating our food system for us. Um, so how, it, how the farm bill works, you know, how these subsidies work is that the government actually picks the winners and losers. So the government is going to pay farmers to grow certain crops. Um, and about 90% of the subsidized foods right now are, are just five crops. They're corn, soybean, wheat, rice, and cotton. Um, and I was actually shocked to learn about cotton because I thought, well, do we eat cotton? And yes, we do. <laughs> we, we eat, um, it's, it's the cottonseed oil that is used largely in like fast food chains and stuff because it's so cheap because it's mm. subsidized. So um, what happens is the government is paying these farmers to grow um, this handful of crops. Um, and, you know, and like the corn and the soybeans, for instance, are going to be mostly genetically engineered. And, um, and then most of these crops are going to be sprayed with, you know, glyphosate or some kind of pesticide or herbicide. So the farmers produce these crops and they, they overproduce them. So we end up getting a surplus which decreases the price of the crop. And then often the farmers then are left with these cheap crops on their hands. So we have to figure out something to do with those crops. And it ends up sacrificing the quality of our food because the solutions that we've come up with to deal with this surplus are, um, there's four main ones that they can be converted into cheap synthetic byproducts that are going to replace natural ingredients. So this would be like um, high fructose corn syrup. Uh, you know, that's much cheaper for a food manufacturer to use than like a real cane sugar. Um, and that comes largely because of, of the farm bill of these food subsidies. So we get, so now we have all of these cheap synthetic byproducts that are added to our foods that um, in large part, many of them are just making us sicker. Um, some of the surplus is processed into feed for the livestock, right? So now we've decreased the, the quality of the, of the diet of our livestock that we're going to eat, and then we're going to suffer again from that decreased quality of food. Um, some of it's exported, and then some of it's converted into ethanol, right, and burned it, burn um, as, as fuel. So... Um, what I thought was really interesting, though, when I was researching about the Farm Bill, <laughs> is that um, the CDC itself came out in 2016 saying, you know, in the course of CDC is another arm of the government, um, they published a study in the Journal of American Medical um, Association, Internal Medicine, and they concluded that these subsidized foods are making us sick. They actually said that people who ate more of these subsidized foods were more likely to be obese, have high blood pressure, have high cholesterol, and actually have higher levels of inflammation in their body. 
So the farm bill, which is, you know, uh, created by government, pushed by our government, drives down the price of these synthetic food ingredients while the government is artificially in, inflating the price of the natural alternatives like the cane sugars. And they're actually, this other arm of the government, CDC, is saying that all this is making us sick. So in essence, the, I view the farm bill as it's an incentive. It's an incentive to, for the industry to use these cheap synthetic ingredients. And if you are eating a typical American diet like I was, that means at least 75% of your calories are probably coming from processed foods and beverages. And in that case, that means you've handed over some of your freedom to the government because at this point, or at that point, the government is largely picking your dinner for you because all of these processed foods and beverages, while they look different, you know, you go down the grocery store aisle, you know, like maybe you're going to pick a frozen meal for, for dinner and you're going to just try to decide between like Mexican food or, or Asian food. It's, you're really just choosing the same thing. You're just choosing between uh, synthetic corn and soy, like genetically engineered byproducts, and synthetic corn and soy genetically engineered byproducts, because they're all made up of the same, um, you know, subsidized process ingredients that are just horrible for us. So that's another actually component of, of freedom that you're losing when you're just picking and eating these, these subsidized foods. Um, and, you know, so as you know, the, the Farm Bill opposes the dietary guidelines. And um, in the first book, I even go into how it's easy just to blame the government. And this goes back to your question, which I loved about talking about practical bite number one, harnessing your own power. So when I was writing this first book, I was still in my journey of recovering from the sickness. And I got to this point where I thought, this is horrible. Like, the system is so bad. What can any one person do about it? You know, that's the victimhood mentality that you can yeah. get into. And I had to come out of that. And what I, what I had to do was really sit down and think, okay, what has worked? You know, like what, and what have, what's Europe done? Why is, why is Europe further along than us in banning GMOs, you know? And what I realized is that you can do all these protests and you can be in these parades, you know, and like shout until you lose your voice. But it, in, in the system that we have, it really comes down to voting with your dollars. Yes. It comes down to your consent. And so that's what I, that was a big piece that I realized. And that harkens back to the declaration too, that, that the, the power comes from the people and it comes from your consent. So I had to start looking at, well, what am I consenting to, right? And by, by buying these foods that have these processed, subsidized ingredients in them, I'm consenting to, to the farm bill. I'm promoting the farm bill. I'm just buying into it. Um, and so I realized that the farm bill isn't just the responsibility of the government. Right. I can't just blame the government. I can't just blame these lobbyists um, for pushing the farm bill. I have to try to take some responsibility, too. And so, um, you know, if you if you start doing things like 
um, eating less of your calories from processed foods, you know, start eating less junk food. Like um, if, you, if you drink soda, I'm going to cut down on my soda. I'm going to drink one less soda today. All of that actually helps. You know, you're taking back your consent and it, and it takes away um, power from, from the farm bill um, by decreasing the demand. So, um, you know, and we can, there's a lot about the, the farm bill and um, who benefits from it the most. Like, it, it's really giant agribusinesses and the wealthy farmers that benefit from the farm bill. Um, so it's big ag. If you, right. if you're, you know, in other words, it's just big ag. Um, very, very little of it goes to like small family farms. Um, well, and it's not a big extension to say that also big pharma benefits because when you give up your freedom of choice and then you're giving up a part of your health freedom, you know, like you mentioned. And so by consuming the subsidized foods that drive inflammation and obesity and metabolic dysfunction, you're also signing away on your freedom to have optimal health and becoming handcuffed to the pharmaceutical industry because that's going to be the, the next step, you know, hook, line, sink. That's exactly right. And I, in the, my first book, I explained that as the new circle of life that, you know, we consent to eating these government subsidized, you know, horrible foods. Um, and then we get sick and then I'm like, but well, don't worry because the government is there uh, with, with socialized medicine. So, right. you know, we can all go through that program now and, you know, buy into that and lose more freedom on that end. So, yeah, that's the circle that they've created. And so the government's winning on both sides. Um, and so I chose to um, not consent to that system. And, and, I, and it's just, it's something that, you know, I, I just choose on a daily basis, like with, with each meal, the more um, whole foods I'm choosing, um, that's one more day where I'm, I'm opting out of that system to try to create um, a better system. Yes, I love it. And I, I think even for listeners that when we're talking about communities of lower socioeconomic status, and maybe this is the last question we'll ask before we do our, our closing question. Uh, but I, I always remember very strongly when my husband was farming in Washington, I was riding on a tractor with a woman who was managing the farm and uh, she was pregnant and she was uh, getting WIC um, food stamps. And she was telling me how it's so crazy. She was like, Ali, it's so crazy. You'll never believe that they will subsidize American cheese singles, but I cannot get real cheese. Um, and she's like, you know, I know better, so I just leave it. And then I, I remember a couple months later, they were starting to work with SNAP and other organizations, and in in, at least this is a Washington kind of more rural area outside of Seattle. And, and over time though, a couple years out, they had established relationships through WIC where because literally no one was grabbing the, the craft or whatever non-brand American processed cheese-like substance, um, that they actually had then a partnership with 
a local creamery. And so they actually had access to. And so I think that the consent is really the important part. I think that, yes, voting with your dollar is always important. But even when you feel that you don't have that component, consent by denial or by um, demonstration based on what you put in your body is ultimately such a powerful influence. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. I, I had not heard that before. But yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, that is harnessing your power. It really does just come down to your consent. Because, you know, in theory, nobody can make you consent to something, right? And so you're, you're taking, you're harnessing that power, you're taking that freedom back. Um, and, it, and it is a very empowering action that you can take you know, and companies respond to it. Um, in my first book, I have all these quotes from, um, from numerous companies like Campbell's and Dove and, you know, Kellogg's. And it's all when they've made um, formulation changes, like taking out um, carrageenan or, you know, other chemicals that we don't want in our food. And they issue a press release and they'll say, this was because of consumer demand. Mm -hmm. You know, the consumer spoke and we listened. And so you, for me, my thinking is consent is nonviolent, right? Consent isn't, I'm, isn't going out and protesting and screaming and being like, I'm in your face. And, you know, that, that's all fear-based too. Um, I don't think that's healthy for an individual, at least not for me. Um, but everybody can do what they want. Um, but when I utilize the power of consent, I'm actually coming from a space of loving myself, you know, and allowing my voice to be heard through the way that I think it could be heard the loudest. And that is their bottom dollar. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, they release statements all the time saying this is because of consumer demand. I love that. And I think that brings our conversation for today really full circle and, and leaves listeners feeling empowered that, yes, you might be just one person or just one family, but there are things that you can do in exercising that consent, voting with your dollar and, and you know, taking back control of what at least happens within your own household uh, that can have an impact. I exactly. love it. Um, so let's leave listeners with just where we can find out more about your work um, and any closing thoughts from both of you. Oh, and when you do, I think we have to do yes. it, Becky. Yeah. yeah. We'll so it. when you, so we'll give you each an opportunity to share, you know, website contact, but <laughs> in closing, because we are dietitians, uh, we want to know your 24 hour recall. So yesterday yeah. was Sunday. Um, so from wake up to when you went to bed, what did you eat? Who's up first? <laughs> Jill, do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, well, uh, so, so you can find out more about us at, at our website, polyfacefarms.com. And if you, uh, that's P-O-L-Y-F-A-C-E. And if you are completely stymied and don't know where to turn, you know, we do ship now. We've been shipping last year um our our food and uh you're welcome to get that we we've we're, we've had great response and um it's it's doing very well so um yeah so the, the closing thought i think we we actually out um Cena and i talked about this in the in that beginning chapter we come for full circle is um 
you know, the old uh, proverb of, of the two, the two dogs, which one will, will thrive and which one won't. And grandpa, you know, the grandson asks and the grandpa says, well, the dog you feed. And there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that, um, that, you know, where we are, where we are right now in our food and farm culture is, is a physical manifestation of, of billions and billions of individual decisions that we've put together over the last, you know, decades. And what our grandchildren will get, the world they get, will also be the result of billions and billions of decisions that we make between now and then. So the question is, um, uh, what decisions am I making today that will feed the right dog and that will make a legacy I want my grandchildren to inherit? It's, it's really that simple, and it, and, and it is that cumulative, uh, and we do have that ability to shape and sculpt the, the legacy we leave for our grandchildren. Love it. Okay, but what did you eat, Joel? <laughs> what did I eat? Yeah, yesterday. <laughs> oh, what did I eat yesterday? From when you woke up uh, to when you went to bed, so people can see an inside of, of oh, what a okay. day well, your, your intake yeah, is. So, yeah, so um, breakfast is usually some sort of eggs and sausage or bacon, uh, grass-based milk, um, and some... Uh, some uh, biological apple juice. Uh, that's breakfast. Let's see. Lunch might be a couple slices of um, A2A2 grass-fed milk cheese, uh, aged cheese with maybe an apple from our tree out here that's bearing apples right now. We're just picking them and, graze and, and grazing through the yard. Uh, supper. Uh, what do we have? Um, we had some chicken that we grew uh, and processed here, uh, beets from the garden, green beans from the garden, apples that we just, that Teresa just turned into applesauce, and uh, some mashed potatoes. We've got potatoes coming out of the garden, so we ate those. Um, and um, the neighbor has some uh, peaches right now, so we picked some peaches, and she made peach cobbler for dessert. So, um, sounds pretty good to me. Sounds like a darn good day. And I think Allie and I are going to need to come and visit at some point. Um, <laughs> Please do. Please do. What about you, Sina? Um, so yeah, you can find me at handsoffmyfood.com. And, um, I, so I vary my diet a lot, but if you're just looking for a one day snapshot, um, uh, it would be, um, broth like so a mug of broth with um raw garlic minced into it um you know after it's done cooking or, or being reheated and um bacon and eggs from polyface farm <laughs> there yeah if you if you read the book you'll understand why i only get my eggs and my meat from polyface farm now um no more store-bought for me um so that would be a breakfast um, well, first I would, um, every day I, I, I intermittent fast. And then when I wake up, I drink 16 ounces of, of filtered water. And then I would have the, the mug of the broth with the raw garlic and the, um, usually probably like an egg and bacon scenario. And then for lunch, um, lunch is my favorite. 
because I have a huge salad and it's just packed full of um, prebiotics and probiotics. Um, so, um, and you know, I vary what's in it, but usually it's, I try to get like two or three different types of lettuce in it, uh, preferably from the farm uh, or my garden. And, um, and I just fill it with all kinds of stuff like jicama and, and celery and more raw garlic and, um, you know, fresh um, turmeric roots and ginger root, um, you know, lots of cucumbers. My body loves cucumbers. Um, and avocado. I love avocado. Um, I generally eat uh, a higher fat diet. Um, so that would be uh, lunch. And then for dinner, um, something like a quarter, of, uh, roughly a quarter of my plate would be a meat, like a, a pork chop, and three quarters would be um, vegetables. Um, I love broccoli and, and green beans and cauliflower, so I generally pair those together. And then I coat them all in a healthy fat, like an like a avocado oil, for instance, or um, a butter from you know, grass-fed cows. And then I put real salts all over it. Um, and that would be it. <laughs> Love it. Sounds amazing as well. And probably more similar to Becky and my <laughs> daily intake as far as the broth. And we're big fans of salt too. I think that's an interesting thing because when you change your diet from processed to all single ingredients, a lot of people miss the important you know, mineral salt and that can throw things off. So it's always something we're harping on for sure. Oh yeah. And people are afraid of salt Yes, <laughs> in general. I mean, I remember it's exactly what you said. Um, when I switched, I didn't even really realize how important it is to add salt to your diet. Cause my mom raised us on a very low salt diet. Yeah. You know, she had kidney problems. And so she was, but you know, that whole misnomer. So they put her on a low salt diet. So nothing we had in, in our house had any flavor because there was no salt in it. <laughs> the chemical um, bridge of flavor connection. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. And so, so um, when, I, when I started to eat, you know, just whole foods, I actually got sick. Yeah. And it, and it was because I wasn't putting enough salt on my food. Hyponatremia, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No but I remember, you know, my dad occasionally will go out to California and we'll visit and I'll bring my real salt with me because he has iodized salt and he'll watch me just put it on my food. And he gets so scared. He's like, <laughs> you're going to kill yourself with all that salt. And <laughs> so, you know, but that's parents for you. And another label, right? An interesting label. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Going. Oh, well, this has been such a fun conversation with you both. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on here. We'll be sure to link your websites. And of course, we will put a link to the new release Beyond Labels. Um, we are just grateful for both of your contributions into the community that we feel really is so, so needed. Um, you know, the, I guess, um, David in the world of Goliath, I guess, <laughs> and we'll all keep fighting the right fight. Um, so thank you so much for your time and energy and, and most importantly for your work. Thank, thank you thank for you. having us on. Thank you. It's been a real delight and a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 
Until next time, stay nourished and be well.